Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor for Variety. Today, my guest in New York is Deborah Lee, former chairman and CEO of BET Networks. Deborah had a front row seat to the explosive growth of cable television during her 32 years at BET. After years in the trenches, making her mark as a leader and as one of only a few African-American female CEOs in media, she's had some time to reflect on the changing content marketplace since her retirement in 2018. In recent months, Lee has joined the board of AT&T and become CEO of Leading Women Defined, an invitation-only conference series for women of color. In this wide-ranging conversation, Lee speaks candidly about how cable missed the threat posed by streaming and the importance of grooming and retaining executives from diverse backgrounds. Deborah Lee, former chairman and CEO of BET Networks, who is now CEO of Leading Women Defined, a conference series. Uh, Thank you so much for stopping by today to talk to us. Great. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Curious, Deborah, you had more than 30 years of experience in the trenches at BET Networks, really growing up with the cable business, right. uh, which just, you know, just invaluable experience, undoubtedly, for these chaotic and disrupted times in media. Now, and you left BET about a year ago, mm-hmm. a little over a year ago. In that time, since you've now had, you have a little arm's length on the business, what stands out to you as you think about where this industry is going, what, what do you think, what do you see as the biggest challenges that the leaders of companies that you like the comp, like the channel group that you used to run, right? What are the biggest challenges that they have to sort of sort out right now? There's a lot of, a lot of things in the air, but I would be curious your perspective as a former CEO, media CEO, what is the, what are the biggest hills to climb in say the next three to five years? That's a very good question. Um, You know, what comes to mind immediately are two major challenges. Um, The first, I would say, is competition. There's just so much content out there. And I remember the early days of the cable industry where, you know, cable systems that had 12 channels or 24 channels uh, thought that that was a lot. And then we went to, you know, 100 channels and 200 channels. Now we have, you know, not only uh, infinite cable channels, but also streaming services and um, all kind of different platforms that take up a lot of uh, time for our viewers and consumers. Um, so I think the biggest challenge is how do you break through all of that? How how do you keep your audience? You know, is it about a brand? Is it about building a brand, which, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about at BET because we had a very loyal audience. Um, and so, you know, we were able to keep that audience because of our brand. Um, but, you know, is it just popular shows? You know, when, when a network starts selling to Netflix, they lose the brand of the network, and then it's just all about shows. You right. Know, people, Their shows can be found 
elsewhere, elsewhere which right. makes it by definition not exclusive to the network exactly. that originated it. Yeah. yeah. So that opens up more opportunities uh, for sales of content, but it also, you know, leaves the consumers a little confused about, well, who produced this show mm-hmm. or what am I tied to this show because of a brand or because I just like the show. Um, so the amount of competition keeps increasing. And um, so that's that's really a, a major challenge, whether you're in cable, whether you're at Netflix, whether you're, you know, doing podcast or or any type of platform. It's really how do you get the attention of the consumer? Um, and I would say the second biggest challenge that, you know, people don't talk about a lot, but was really a challenge for me when I was at BET is the measurement of the audience and how that uh, translates into ratings. Uh, You know, we're still in a system where uh, in cable we have advertising spots and we sell those to advertisers uh, based on a guarantee of an audience. Um, And if you don't hit that guarantee, you have to give advertisers money back. So if I put on a show on Tuesday, let's say Being Mary Jane, which was one of our most popular shows, and, you know, my viewer says, well, I'm going to wait till Saturday to watch it because that's when I have more time uh, and I'm not working. Um, We wouldn't get credit for that show because you have to be within a three-day window to get credit. For the maximum advertising value. Yeah, correct. And a lot of consumers don't understand that, don't care about that. You know, it's all about convenience for them now. And that means, you know, watching it when you want to waiting, you can wait for, you know, five episodes to pile up and then binge watch it. Um, So the rating system has not kept up with the platforms and with the way uh, consumers watch television, basically. Um, So that's very frustrating because you can have a very popular show Mm -hmm. that you know everyone loves and, you know, you you can't meet your guarantee to advertisers. Um, So, you know, it's, it's been amazing to me that the measurement systems and companies haven't solved that problem. Um, It's because it's a major issue. Right. And, and when you were at BET, you're part of a huge media conglomerate Viacom with, you know, dozens of channels and a lot of clout, both with advertisers and sort of within the industry. And I know over the years, people at Viacom and elsewhere have really tried to kind of go at the, both the multi-platform measurement challenge, capturing all the viewing and also having that larger discussion with advertisers. I remember the, 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 you know, the, the process that led just to even extending the ratings viewing period to three days. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, months of negotiations and lots of arm wrestling and lots of horse trading. Yeah. Um, what, what did you find was sort of the fundamental obstacle to coming to a better system that would allow, allow networks to capture more viewing? Was it just the entrenched, constituencies? Was it technological? Well, uh, it was a little of both. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the constituencies because advertisers didn't really have a, a reason to make the system work better because they're getting shows right. at, at less of a cost when you think about it. Um, and until someone comes up with a system that competes well with Nielsen, uh, which is the you know dominant um, 
um, system right now, um, you know, there wasn't any way to to resolve the issue. Um, so it's just a, a perplexing system. And you mentioned a good point, which I didn't mention when I was describing. It's not it's not only the three day and seven day issue of when you watch it. It's also what platform you watch it on. Right. So if you watch my show on uh, your phone or your iPad or your computer instead of on the cable network, uh, we might not get credit for that. So it that was a big part of it too. And, and that has just grown and grown. You know, right. the streaming viewing has grown and grown that's increasing amount of money on the table right and and the younger generation is watching tv actual tv less and less i remember both of my kids are millennials and when they were in college they didn't have tvs i was like how can you not have tv your mom's in the tv and they're like well we just watch it on our computer or our laptop and they knew as much about content they probably watch more content than i do but they were just watching it at another um, through another means. So that was a problem, too. So, you know, I've been out of the industry for about a year. I don't know what's happened in that time, but I'm just still amazed that 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 problem hasn't been resolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you in the in your new chapter of your life, have you become have you? Have you had more time to become a consumer of content? Have you spent more time in the content world or have you been traveling the world yeah. and, <laughs> I've actually, and clearing your mind of right. all the... <laughs> I, I've traveled a little bit. I'm not a big traveler for long periods of time. I like to come home and check in. Um, but I am a, more of a consumer now. And I watch channels that I wouldn't watch before because they were too competitive to be ET. Oh. <laughs> So now I can watch um, programming targeted to our audience, African-American audience, and I can enjoy it as opposed to saying, oh, I wish power was on BET. Why is it on stars? You know, there is always that very competitive part of of running a network. Uh, And, and, you know, when um, black programming became popular, which it is right now, um, you know, it was coming at us from all different areas. areas. And, you know, um, VH1 had Monday nights where they put on their black programming. Bravo had Wednesday night. You know, someone else had Thursday night. Our big night was Tuesday. So you just felt like you were, you know, in a boxing match all the time trying to beat out others in the ratings game. Um, So that made it hard for me to enjoy Mm -hmm. programming. But now I can watch it and enjoy it. Um, I can talk about it with my kids. Uh, They tell me what their favorite shows are. Uh, And I love binge watching. I, I really do. Now that you, you have know, some time. Yeah, yeah, now that I have a time, not time, and now that I don't have to worry about ratings. I, you know, binge watching was something I just hated before. Right. But now, but now <laughs> it was I'm costing like, you yeah, money. Yeah. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, this really works. You know, I can watch um, five episodes of Succession if I want to, uh, <laughs> or The Affair or whatever. So, yeah, I've always been a big TV watcher, but uh-huh. now I'm even more so of one. Is there anything about now that you're a consumer, uh, more of a, you know, not in the industry is there anything about the way shows are presented you know that the binge option is there anything that that you that you access now and you think oh gosh we should have done that five years ago ten years ago at BET have you had that experience at all um I think the Netflix model is 
pretty interesting that they drop all the episodes at one time. Um, I don't know that we could have really done that at BET because of, you know, we were still um, um, joined at the hip with the rating system. But I mean, I think consumers are used to that now. Um, so when you like uh, basic cable or even pay cable, now when they have to wait a week to see a show, I think that really bothers the consumers more than it did five t- five years ago. Um, There's but, an impatience. Right. We've all become, a, we, right. we're in the on-demand era now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you like episode one, you want to watch episode two right. right away, you know, the thought that you have to wait a week. So in a way, I wish that BET had been part of that um uh, uh, business model that we could have done that uh, because I think when you know when you catch a consumer's um, attention you want to keep it and you don't want to risk them going to watch something else um, so I can't think of anything else um, sometimes I wish we were more in pay cable because so we could use uh, more interesting language i'll put it that way be a little grittier <laughs> right uh-huh. because that seems to have gotten more and more popular i remember once i bought um the wire uh-huh. uh because i i had heard that it was so highly you know it was so um loved by the critics and it was like the best you know urban right. documentary ever i mean um series ever made so uh i remember buying it for bet and putting it on but because we were basic cable i had to blank out all the curse words which were it, considerable in that yes. show <laughs> more beats take out than dialogue the s word the f word the b word uh and i remember talking to the head of NAACP cuz i wanted the, him to know uh, he's a friend of mine Bruce Gordon and i called him and said you know we're putting on the wire uh we may get some feedback from our uh, our criticism from our audience uh but i want you to know we have an 800 number that sounds really outdated doesn't it we have an 800 number and <laughs> And if if there's a real problem with it, um, you know, I'll take it down. And he said, well, why would you be different from HBO? And I said, well, because we're basic cable and they're pay cable. Anyway, we put it on. We just we got no feedback, but no one watched it. So we had the worst outcome is that we had paid all this money the for worst a show. Of all right. Yeah. Oh my I almost wish they hated it and at least would talk about it, but it, it just died on our channel because, you know, it took all the um, um, uh, culture or, you know, um, uh, realism mm-hmm. of the show out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those, that's one of the problems you face in uh, basic cable. And, and it's not to say I'm a proponent for really foul language, mm-hmm. but, you know, sometimes it's part of a story. Right. Um, one time I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, during Being Mary Jane, uh, we had a prohibition on BET about using the word bitch. And, um, so being Mary Jane was, you know, more edgy. And so they would come and say, can we use bitch in this scenario? And they described the scenario to me. Well, one time they came and they said, uh, uh, Mary Jane was in a car accident and she was coming back to work and she had um, some injuries on her face, but she was walking down the hall, you know, very proud and she was going to tackle being back at work after this accident. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they were playing a song in the background and they called to tell me that the song had 38 bitches in it. 
<laughs> I was like, 36 be okay. <laughs> and I was like, you're kidding me, right? 38 bitches. And they said, yeah, but it's really important to storyline. And, you know, and the, the creator and the writer were really, so I eventually, uh, said it was okay. It was a hip hop song. And um, it was important to the, the plot. But, you know, it was really a big step uh, mm-hmm. for us as a basic cable network to do that. And and um, in reality, the African American audience is um, can be very conservative at times. Mm-hmm. So you never know when they're going to really criticize you or hold something against you. Uh, but I, you know, I often think that may be the title of my... Uh, book is 38 bitches <laughs> it would certainly being a turning point in my career <laughs> it would cer- it would certainly be compelling but yeah that's a, that's a really interesting and of course nowadays you wouldn't even if you wanted to you couldn't buy a show from HBO because it's right. all being funneled into it's all being funneled into HBO and the streaming service that, oh, that right. Warner Media right and, and that's a, that's an important point because right. a lot of shows we did buy were from uh, were either broken series or series that you know mm-hmm. the um, networks weren't going to ever use themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, that that option has gone out the door. Right. And speaking of Warner Media, you mm-hmm. have recently joined the board of AT and T. Yes, I have. Just a matter of weeks ago. Right. So I realized that that you're the new kid. You're the new kid in the boardroom. Yes. But any you know and and. As fate would happen, the company is in the headlines this week. I'm sure you saw that the Elliott management, and as self-described activist investor, mm-hmm. has some thoughts about how AT and T should be operating and what you know what what stock price they can reach in the future. I realize it's touchy for you to talk about yeah. anything directly like that, but in the broad strokes, can you tell me certainly what motivated you to join the board and what you see as and AT&T's opportunities that they have with their, you know, with their kind of unique mix right now of content, a massive wireless telephone service, and also direct TV. Yeah. Um, You're right. I can't comment on anything that's going on uh, at the company as a board member. Uh, But I was attracted um, to joining the board of AT&T because of the wide array of, of, uh, uh, platform and businesses they do own. Uh, and I was especially excited that they, that Warner Media was a part, uh, of the company. And I've, you know, um, admired Warner Media for years and the HBO has an amazing brand and the Turner Networks and CNN. I mean, I could go on and on. Yeah. You, um, you know, those you, cable right. brands pretty well. Very well. Yes. I've competed with them <laughs> right, for right. many years um, and watched them grow. And so um, when I was contacted uh, about my interest in AT&T, that was the, the the major reason I was really interested. And then, you know, it's also great to learn more about the uh, technology side and 5G and all the other things coming down the pike. So, um, um, you know, as I was planning my next phase of life, uh, which is, has been very interesting, uh, I realized that I wanted to keep my hand in content and that this would be a good way to do it. You know, not in an operating role, but in a uh, on a board where you know my advice could could be useful. 
Um, so I was, I'm very excited about that. Mm-hmm. Have you had much interaction with Randall Stevenson and John Stanky? Yeah, uh, not yet. I haven't even been to my first board meeting yet. <laughs> so you are <laughs> so, but I've known Randall, the... you know, through the industry for a few years. Um, I haven't met John yet, mm-hmm. but uh, but I'm excited about getting involved. And having been a CEO, and I know you mm-hmm. have lived, you know, in Viacom, you lived through, you know, several good sized mergers. When you look at the challenge that a, the, the the challenge and the opportunity that AT and T has in still you know they're they're still in the integration process of AT and T and Warner Media. Right. As a CEO, do you look at that and think, "Oh my God, that's a lot of work," or or are you kind of invigorated and think, "Wow, I can really I might be able to help them as they guide through as they you know as they guide through the process right. of, of any any type of merger is difficult you know." on any level, but at the scale of the businesses that they're operating is pretty immense. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm invigorated, you know, because, um, as you said, I've had 32 years of experience at BET. I've been on other, uh, boards for a long time, Mm -hmm. for over 20 years. I've seen on the board of Twitter for a a long time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm on the board of Marriott. I've been on that board for about 18 years. So I went through their Marriott Starwood merger. Uh, so I've seen mergers and acquisitions and I I know it's an exciting time for the company. It can be a scary time for employees and executives because you never know um, what the company is going to look like after the merger. Uh, but I thought, especially um, uh, because this is new to AT&T, uh, I'm very excited about being able to give good advice and be helpful uh, from a board perspective. Well, you should be in for some lively discussions yes. <laughs> when, when you get together. Well, we will stay tuned on that. Let me ask you a little bit, going back to the, your early days at BET, you joined in uh, 1986 right. in, in the legal department. Right. You, you pretty much established the legal department. You were the legal department. I was for many years. <laughs> um, I was the first in-house counsel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you think about those days, I, I, I think a lot of people have looked back at the early the growth of cable mm-hmm. and looking at how streaming is transforming the marketplace now and kind of looking for parallels and how cable changed things. Um, how can you remember those early years when you were just growing by leaps and bounds, the cable, right. the cable subscription, uh, the, the whole subscription footprint of cable mm-hmm. was growing by leaps and bounds in the 80s. Can you remember those years like what what were really um what really fueled BET's growth at that time and and how when you kind of got the sense that you were really you were really getting in there and making enough of an impact to be competitive with the with the entrenched old mm-hmm. guard which were the broadcast networks right well, I, um, as you said, I joined uh, BET in 1986. Uh, the company was about six years old. Um, it started in 1980. And, um, you know, around the time I joined, um, it was becoming much larger at a faster pace because cable was just getting into urban areas. Um, you may recall when 
cable first started, right. it, was a, it was a rule. Um, it was to plug holes for right. people that lived so far out they couldn't get a local station. Correct. So it was a rural solution. Um, and it took a long time for it to get to um, uh, bigger cities because they're so <laughs> Which hard. Which is so hard to believe I know. now. <laughs> they're so hard to wire. Right. Um, but when I joined BET in 1986, before I left the law firm where um, I got to know BET and Bob Johnson, uh, I actually worked on the DC cable franchise oh, uh, uh-huh. for Bob Johnson and um, I guess TCI was his partner at the time. Uh, but anyway, pretty good partner, right? To have. right. <laughs> <laughs> and they were a part owner of BET. Right. Uh, I think we were the first um, cable programming investment that. TCI did BET. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we were early on. But anyway, long story short, there was no cable in DC when I left the law firm to go work at BET. So all the partners were like, you're going where? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, cable's not going to really last. <laughs> there are all kind of theories about MMDS or other kind of technology. Mm-hmm. And I learned a couple of things from those uh, early days. One, never underestimate new technology. And I think the broadcast networks did underestimate Mm -hmm. cable. Mm -hmm. They just didn't really see it as a real competitor. And one of the reasons is that at the time, cable was mainly a retransmission mechanism. You know, no one was doing original programming. You know, we were buying things from the broadcast networks. We were showing music videos, you know, especially BET and MTV. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was local news, uh, but there wasn't anything very creative. So I think the broadcast networks just didn't think we were ever going to really grow or scale. Um, But it happened Mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, the first indication at BET was that we were going to become competitive was when we went public in 1991. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was five years after I started. And um, we were able to raise a lot of capital by going public. So the question after uh, the public offering was, what were we going to use the uh, proceeds for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were the first African-American company to go public on the New York Stock Exchange. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of excitement about that. A lot of milestones for founder Robert right, Johnson. For sure. The the stock price on the first day went from $17 to $29. So not only were we a successful black company, we we're a successful American company. Right. You know, this was the, the promise of capitalism. You know, you grow a business and then you take it uh, public. Right. You don't necessarily have to grow a business anymore for some reason. <laughs> I was going to say that trajectory right. seems so so pleasantly old fashioned. Right. right. <laughs> we, had, we had to prove that we had a certain number of years with positive revenue. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's all changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's when, you know, we started feeling, OK, we we're we're here to stay. Right. You know? If Wall Street has taken you seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. And um I think around that time, or maybe a few years earlier, we went from um, uh, being a free service to charging three cent. And then I remember at one point we went to 10 cent, mm-hmm. which was a charging big, the cable operators. The cable operators for, yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. Not the not the consumers, but the cable sure. operators. And uh, and then we eventually got to 10 cent. And that was a big step. And that's a lot of guaranteed revenue when you're doing you know, five-year deals or 10-year deals. And at that time, half our revenue came from advertising and half came from uh, cable affiliates. Mm -hmm. So after we um, 
you know, were able to to get the long term cable deals, um, we became more comfortable. And you know, advertising comes and goes, but you know, if you get some of the bigger brands who understand the African American marketplace, um, that helps you get others. But you know, tying up the cable uh, operators and being the only service targeted to mm-hmm. African Americans really put us in in a good place for a number of years. I think about those times and I think about how much, you know, cultural attitudes have changed right. just in just in even in my adult lifetime. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, was it a difficult conversation at times to get people to to get cable operators to value an African American centric service? Yes, for sure. It was um some of the, as cable, again, as cable went into the major cities that had larger black population, it was an easier uh, uh, conversation. But still, a lot of cable operators didn't really see the need for a channel like BET. Um, or they would say, you know, I don't have, I have less than 10% uh, of black viewership, so why would I need you? Um, so there were a lot of hard conversations, a lot of marketing, a lot of dealing with local politicians to get them to support us. Um, the fact that TCI was an investor helped a little bit. Right. <laughs> John right. Malone was a very uh, big supporter. Helps uh, to have Cable's Darth Vader on right. your side. <laughs> and sometimes it helped. Most of the time it helped, but sometimes it hurt because mm. other cable systems, bigger cable systems were like, well, you, we know you gave TCI a sweetheart deal. No. Yeah. Right? So you had to prove you didn't. Uh, and I, you know, the most favorite nations clauses were just, as a lawyer, the worst thing to me that ever existed. <laughs> and th- those are really challenging in this in this environment right. with the digital MVPDs. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's 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 uh, every oh, it, it still makes my skin crawl <laughs> to hear the term "most favored nation" because you know basically what it says is okay, I'm going to do a deal with you, but if anyone else comes by and does a better deal, I want the advantage of the deal they negotiated. With I have you. to revert, right? Yeah. So. You know, it takes away your need to be a good negotiator because yeah. you can just sit back and wait for whoever to come along. But anyway, that's a, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's yeah. a whole nother story. Um, but um, so there was a period, I think, from maybe 88 to um, we went public in 1991 to maybe 95 where there's just immense growth because New York was coming online mm-hmm. and DC mm-hmm. and Chicago mm-hmm. and um, uh, those those cities helped us grow quite a bit mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so do you see parallels to the way you know Netflix has just kind of stormed into the marketplace do you see parallels to kind of what's the disruption that's going on now right I see a lot of parallels uh, the number one is that um, Cable programmers were so anxious to sell to Netflix in the early days. You know, it was almost like found money. Right. It was like, oh, we have these shows on the library shelves. You know, Netflix needs programming. And, They're willing to write a check. Right. And a big check. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so what the cable programming industry did was feed mm-hmm. Cable and broadcast. Right, and yeah. broadcast mm-hmm. for a long time. And then all of a sudden, Netflix starts doing their original programs and starts being a viable competitor. Um, so I think it's kind of exactly what happened with cable and broadcast is that the cable industry didn't take Netflix seriously. Mm-hmm. They really didn't. And all of a sudden... They're a behemoth and, um, you know, they don't have advertising. 
seems like no one's holding them to a right, right. <laughs> positive revenue right. model. <laughs> Free cash flow doesn't seem to right, matter if right. you're Netflix. And yeah. they're just creating more and more programming. Yeah. So so um, I think that was a hard lesson for cable programmers. Hindsight is definitely more closer to 2020 than, right. than being in the trenches. Yeah. Um, Deborah, you know, th- through your career, especially in your last years at BET, I mean, you were one of, you know, it's sad to say, but you're one of maybe count them on two hands, yeah. the number of female CEOs in prominent media mm-hmm. positions. Mm-hmm. What in your experience and in your role now uh, as CEO of Leading Women Defined, what what are the, some of the best things that companies can do, companies of size can do to help groom a new generation of right. leaders to make sure that there's enough women, enough people of color, enough people of all diverse backgrounds right. to bring the diversity that, that, you know, people almost universally say is so important, especially to a business that is in the business of, of drawing public audiences and, and, you know, reaching mass markets, even, even if it's in narrower slices, everybody wants, everybody wants to have. Oh, sure. What, so in, you know, in, in this environment right now, is Mm -hmm. have there been, have you had experiences at BET or things or, or seen companies that did really, smart, proactive things that helped groom that generation Mm -hmm. of leaders? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, the thing we have to focus on now, and it's the term that's very popular is diversity and inclusion. But I think the, the part we should be, you always have to focus on diversity and you always have to make sure people get through the door. Mm-hmm. That's really important. So we can't take our eye off that. But I think the inclusion part is even more important these days mm-hmm. because you want people to stay. You yeah. want people to feel comfortable, whether it's people of color or women. You want them to feel comfortable in the environment um, of the company. You want them to feel like they can um, uh, be promoted um, and that they have a, a long-term career there and that maybe one day they can be in the C-suite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the part that we haven't focused on enough, just how do you keep um, um, a diverse executive team at the company. And you mentioned about the number of women. I think that's a, we still is a, an important issue because, you know, there was a Vanity Fair article, um, several years ago about mm-hmm. the number of women that, mm-hmm. that led cable networks. Right. And I think maybe there were six or seven of us. Mm-hmm. It was pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Within a year, half of that number we're gone right. for one reason or another. Um, so even if you have a critical mass, it can disappear really fast. Right. The executive musical chairs is right. endless. You know, consolidation right. or someone just decides to leave and do something else. Um, so it's important to keep the pipeline going and make sure um, that if, you know, if if I leave or Judy McGrath leaves or mm-hmm. uh, someone else, that there are people uh, behind us to keep it going. And I think, you know, the past two years have been so interesting with the Me Too movement right. and such an awakening. Up, of, right. Yeah. Um, and the issues that women have in the workplace. Um, and those were issues we didn't talk about a mm-hmm. lot. But those mm-hmm. issues and, you know, how do you have a family and, and, um, um, to, you know, become an executive at a company. Uh, so there's still a lot of things to talk about. And, um, you know, it's it, the, the issue is never 
over. You know, uh, I think it was Sandra Day O'Connor who said in 25 years we didn't we wouldn't need any affirmative action laws. And it sounded crazy when she said it. It sounds even crazier right. today. Um, but I think companies and, and a lot of companies are taking diversity and inclusion very seriously um, and, you know, really focusing on um, how do you make it better um, for working parents, for mm-hmm. uh, people of color, and especially the industry we're in, mm-hmm. because um, it's so important to have different images on the air. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot about about, uh, in, about my life and growing up in the segregated South and only seeing black people on TV for one hour a week and on Soul Train. <laughs> I mean, that was it. <laughs> and if you missed that, it was like we didn't even exist. So this industry is so important. I think we've made a lot of um, uh, headway in terms of images and um, you know, I think uh, broadcast network and cable networks and streaming services are all realizing what we knew at BET for a long time, that we have a very loyal audience and we want to see ourselves and uh, we'll show up in numbers when it when it's done right. Um, and so it's important to have people behind the camera or in the executive suites who can make those kind of decisions and, and are really sensitive uh, to the viewing audience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, tell me what you grew up, you were born and raised in South Carolina. I was born in South born Carolina. Born in South Carolina. Yeah. And then I, my dad was in the army. So we moved all over the place. Moved all over the place. And then you went to law school. Yep. And were working for a very prominent DC firm. Correct. What was it that really um, turned the tide for you in terms of leaving what I'm sure was a successful law track right. to working for a startup uh, company. Were you a were you a TV fan growing up? Yeah, did you? I was always a TV fan, um, and I wanted. I went to law school um, with the idea I was going to change the world some kind of way. You know, I saw what Thurgood Marshall had done in the fifties and sixties, or Constant Baker Motley, or all these people that I admired, and I thought law school was the way to do that. By the time I got to law school, it, and especially because I went to Harvard, it was not the best choice of law school. I mean, it was it was great for a lot of other reasons, but it wasn't the place to talk about changing public policy or changing the world. It was very focused on black letter law and this is what the courts say. And so mm-hmm. I was looking for a way out of it. And I, I went to the Kennedy School because mm-hmm. I thought that that would, uh, if I went into government, I'd be closer to what I wanted to do. Anyway, long story short, Ronald Reagan won when I moved to Washington and I decided to go to a big law firm to hang out till the Democrats came back. <laughs> <laughs> but that took 12 years. Yeah. So after about five years, years, I said, okay, I got it. I never really wanted to be a partner at a law firm. Um, it was never in my uh, career uh, strategy. So I said, you know, I need to go do something else. And I have found by that time that I really enjoyed communications and media, because mm-hmm. um, that's the kind of work I was doing at the firm. And BET was a client, a very small client. Mm-hmm. They didn't have very much mm-hmm. money. Uh, and eventually, uh, Bob Johnson offered me the position to come and start the uh, uh, legal department. And by that time, I had done some interviewing in New York um, with HBO and CBS Records and companies that sounded interesting to me, but I didn't really want to move to New York. 
at that point. Uh, I was a D.C. girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my dad was originally from D.C., so even though I hadn't grown up there, it always felt like home. Uh-huh. Um, so BT provided the perfect answer. It was an entertainment company. It was in D.C. It was focused on an audience that I cared about. Mm-hmm. I had grown up with uh, black brands like Motown and... Um, um, uh, ebony and mm-hmm. essence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really brought a lot of different areas together. And I thought it was a way to change the world. Um, not directly through policy, but indirectly, because, you know, we could lobby right. the Hill or the White House, whoever was in the White House. We had a voice as one of the largest black companies out there. Um, and we were committed to it and committed to our audience. So, you know, it worked out in a lot of ways uh, to include things that were of interest to me. It wasn't the career I planned. (laughs) And I tell this story often. My father said, why are you leaving this prestigious law firm? And I said, well, I'm just not having fun anymore. And he looked at me and he said, well, if it was supposed to be fun, they wouldn't call it work. And he meant that (laughs) to the core of his being. He was in the Army for 25 years. I don't think he could say he had fun on any particular day. But I just thought in the era... uh, I wasn't a millennial, but pre-millennial, that, um, you know, you should enjoy the work you do. And um, I was willing to leave uh, a firm where I wasn't fully satisfied and take a risk. Uh, And in hindsight, it's the best risk that I've ever taken. And I'm sure dad was proud. He was. He was. <laughs> By the time he lived in Baltimore, by the time Baltimore got cable, and <laughs> for a period of time, he developed Alzheimer's uh, early on. So that was sad. But he would cut out any article he saw uh, about BET and send it to. Remember when you had to cut out articles? Yes. And, yeah. yes. So he would send it. So he was very proud. Yeah. I think he would say, I made the right move. Thank you so much, Deborah, for coming and sharing your thoughts with us. We really look forward to seeing, you know, what is next for you. And I'll keep my eye on Leading Women Define. Oh, great. Great. Well, I hope Leading Women Define is a way to give women who are moving up the ladder in the business world a way to support each other um, and really focus on uh, supporting and what needs we have. So I'm excited about it. Sounds so, like a really worthy, worthy project. Yeah, well, thank you for having me today. Thanks for your time, Deborah. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Strictly Business.